We are going to continue our worship this morning as Mary Elizabeth comes to read the scripture. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Luke 23, 13 through 25. Well, ever since Perry Mason first appeared on the television screen in 1957, legal dramas like Matlock and L.A. Law and Bull and Boston Legal and Ally McBeal have captured the attention of Americans. And you know, the same could be said for big screen as well. You think of movies like A Few Good Men or A Time to Kill or Twelve Angry Men. It would seem the courtroom drama is one of the most popular genres of entertainment. And I suspect this is just because of how easy it is to get caught up in the pursuit of justice and the high stakes that are often associated with the trial. Perhaps this is why every so often a real-life trial will capture uh, the collective attention of our nation, as was the case last month with the murder trial of Alex Murdo. Uh, knowing interest was sky-high as the conclusion was reached, many broadcast networks went into special report mode to air that verdict live and interrupted regularly scheduled programming much to the chagrin of Jeopardy fans everywhere. Well, this morning I'd like to look with you at a courtroom drama where the stakes were every bit as high as the prominent trials that have garnered national attention in recent years. It's a trial that reveals complex human emotions and motivations. We'll see anger and jealousy and ambition alongside virtues like strength and compassion. But with this particular trial, and very much unlike Matlock and the legal dramas I find so emotionally satisfying, our drama doesn't end with the exoneration of the innocent and the punishment of the guilty. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The, the trial I'm referring to isn't available for playback on courtroom TV, but it just so happens that a doctor turned historian by the name of Luke took the time to interview eyewitnesses, and then he inked a record of what transpired 
If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke's gospel. We'll begin in chapter 22, verse 66. Now, just to set the stage here, the defendant in question is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, For the past three or so years, you can think of him almost like a traveling rabbi. And his exposition of the scriptures has brought him in conflict with the religious establishment of the day. And he's performed some pretty remarkable miracles or signs to authenticate the claims that he's making and to uh, verify the uniqueness of his ministry. And after celebrating the Passover meal on Thursday evening of Passion Week, Jesus journeyed with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And we don't know the exact hour here. I suspect sometime around midnight or just a little bit after in the wee hours of Friday morning, uh, one of his former disciples decided to betray him, a man named Judas Iscariot. Judas knew where Jesus would be. The religious leaders didn't want to arrest him in the daytime. So they came after him at night. And uh, there's some armed guards. You could think of it almost like a, a posse dispatched from the religious leaders. They've got clubs and swords. They come to seize Jesus. And Jesus is bound and carted off uh, to the homes of the high priests. First to Annas, who uh, was previously the high priest and still wielded considerable influence or clout. He was an influential power broker. And then to his son-in-law Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time. And it's here that Jesus is interrogated and harassed throughout the wee hours of the morning. Uh, These early morning proceedings are a kangaroo court. Uh, We'll pick up now in verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Jesus will be subject to two trials in a span of about six hours. The first trial is a religious one. It's conducted by the Jewish Sanhedrin. When Luke talks about the assembly of the elders of the people, he is referring to this group known as the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of Israel, comprised of 70 men plus the high priest for that year, making it a total of 71. And this group is made up of chief priests and scribes, the chief priests most likely from the aristocratic families. They would have affiliated with the party of the Sadducees, and then the scribes would have affiliated with the party of the Pharisees. And you can think of this group as a supreme court of sorts. They're governing um, civil, religious matters for the people. And the Sanhedrin knows the Jewish law requires a trial to be held in daylight. So wanting to maintain this veneer of legality once the sun is up, they waste no time holding a mock trial. In our legal system, you might hear of lawyers who before a trial will shop for a judge. They try to gain things so that they end up with the judge who will be sympathetic to their argument. Well, the prosecutors in Jesus' trial are shopping a crime. They've already decided on the verdict, Jesus is guilty, and they've landed on the sentence, the death penalty. Now they just need to pin a crime on him that's befitting of capital punishment. So they ask Jesus, are you the Christ? 
In other words, are you the Messiah? Christ and Messiah are, are words that can be used interchangeably. Messiah is derived from the Hebrew, and, and Christ originates from the Greek. Both words, they mean the same thing, uh, the anointed one. So they're asking, are, are you the long-awaited, the promised one, the one that's spoken about in the Old Testament scriptures? Are you the one Israel's awaiting? And Jesus knows that this question hasn't arisen from spiritual curiosity on their part. He knows that they aren't sincere in their questioning. They're not trying to wrap their minds around the nature of his ministry and his identity. So he more or less says, it's useless to answer your question. If I said yes, you wouldn't believe me. And if I tried to reason with you from the scriptures, you're not going to answer me. Uh, we saw that unfold about two days prior. Jesus had tried to open their eyes to the possibility that their preconceptions about the Christ weren't aligned with Scripture. And so he quoted from Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a psalm that David wrote. And, and, and Jesus says, how can we say that the Christ is David's son when David in this passage refers to his son as my Lord? I mean, what's up with that? Since normally, isn't it, isn't it the son that shows honor and respect to the father? And what Jesus is implying here is that, it, you know, it, it might be important to see the Messiah, not just as David's son, but also as his Lord. But Jesus doesn't completely fail to answer the question that was levied at him. In fact, the council gets a little bit more than they bargained for. Because in his response, it's as if Jesus says, you're wondering if I'm the Christ, but you don't know the half of it. After you've done what you've made up your minds to do, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, to refer to himself instead of the first person pronoun I. The Son of Man is spoken of in Daniel 7, uh, chapter thir uh, verse 13 and 14. And uh, this is what it says in that passage. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to this person, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Sounds like a pretty impressive person, doesn't it? Well, Jesus identifies himself as this individual, the one who's going to be given dominion. And he also adds that he's going to be seated at the right hand of God, uh, which this was clearly a reference again to Psalm 110, which the religious leaders knew to be a royal psalm. The Sanhedrin understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. Jesus is asserting sovereignty. The one who sits at the right hand of God is the one who has the right to rule. It's a regal claim. Jesus was insinuating that even though they're the ones judging him in this moment, one day he would judge them. And so they ask, are you the son of God then? In other words, are you, are you claiming to be God's virtual equal? And Jesus is indirect but affirmative in his reply you say that i am and the council's response to this is case closed we've got what we need this man is committing blasphemy and he deserves to die 
And this then leads to Jesus' second trial, which was a civil one. And the reason for the second trial, uh, the reason the Sanhedrin drags the Romans into this, is that the power of the sword or the power of execution belongs solely to Roman authority. And you might say, well, well, yeah, hold on, wait a minute here. I remember reading in John 6 about the time where the Pharisees got so upset with Jesus, they picked up stones to hurl at him. And I'm thinking about Acts 7, uh, you know, the, the Stephen is stoned to death. W- what about those instances? And, and the answer to that is uh, those were acts of mob violence. That's what happened there. These weren't the outworkings of some legitimate legal process. And the Sanhedrin is wanting to give an air of legality to their calculated scheme. As we shall see, they're savvy political operators. And so we'll pick up now in chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Notice the charges that are brought against Jesus. This is why I say the, uh, the religious establishment, uh, there's some savvy political operators. The chief priests are aware that Pilate doesn't have any interest in wading into their religious squabbles. Their actual reasons for wanting Jesus eliminated would have been a no concern to Pilate. So the Sanhedrin levels charges that were more political in nature. They're threefold. Jesus is accused first of misleading, or some translations say subverting the nation of Israel. He's accused of, of seducing the people away from loyalty to Rome hoping this would get Pilate's attention. Now, is that true or false? That's false. Jesus didn't come to lead a rebellion or start an uprising or overthrow Rome. In fact, if you remember, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the people got so excited that they wanted to make him king, right? And what does Jesus do? Jesus deliberately evades the crowd and retreats. Second charge, Jesus is forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. True or false? That one's false too. That's right. Jesus, just a few days prior, had said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. The third accusation is he's saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, on this third charge, Pilate presses in because a claim to kingship would be a direct challenge to Caesar and his authority. So Pilate asked Jesus, you, the word you there is emphatic in the Greek, can almost Maybe picture him saying it rather condescendingly from his, from his seat looking down. You? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus doesn't deny it. You have said so. Once again, it's his reply. It's an expression that def- deflects responsibility back on the one asking the question. And according to John's gospel, Jesus also qualifies his response by letting Pilate know that his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is not a political threat. Now, you don't land the job as governor of Judea without learning how to read a room. Pilate recognizes the ulterior motives of the Sanhedrin, and he declares that Jesus is innocent. 
The trial should have been over at this point, but the chief priests continue to insist that Jesus is guilty of stirring up the people. He's inciting revolution from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate hears Galilee, he sends a potential opportunity to pass the buck, to do a little political two-step. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Hmm. Now, just there's a lot of Herods in the Bible. This is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. Herod the Great is the one who was alive when Jesus was born. And when Herod the Great dies, his kingdom was split among his three sons. The oldest son, Herod Archelaus, he inherited the region that you can see in that map, Judea, Idumea, and Samaria. And his son, Herod Antipas, the one that's mentioned here in the passage, ruled Galilee and Perea. Uh, what happened to Antipas is that Caesar Augustus quickly disposed him after he began to rule because of so many bad reports about him. And that region, uh, Judea, where Jerusalem is, was transformed into a, a Roman province and governed by a Roman prefect or governor, and that's Pilate at this point in time. And Herod Antipas is over Galilee, where Jesus has done much of his ministry. And this individual, Herod Antipas, is the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And Jesus isn't interested in performing parlor tricks for this man. He wants to see some sign. And Jesus doesn't do anything. In fact, it would seem Jesus held Herod in particularly low regard because in Luke 13, he calls him a fox. Herod would get no miracle. He would get no sermon. He would not even get a devotional thought. Jesus says nothing. And this reminds me of the parable Jesus told of Lazarus, the beggar, and the rich man. You might remember reading about this. The rich man died, and he's sent to a place of torment. And he sees Lazarus where he's at, and he sees Father Abraham. And he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to go warn my five brothers so that they can avoid the same fate. And do you recall the response that, that Jesus puts in the mouth of Abraham to give this rich man. Here's what he says. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be they, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you willfully suppress lesser revelation, you're probably not going to get greater revelation. God is under no obligation to give that. Herod has willfully rejected the witness of John the Baptist repeatedly. And as a result, his heart is now hard. So after Herod treats Jesus with contempt and mocks him, he sends him back to Pilate. And we see Pilate picks up the reins of this increasingly volatile situation. Continue with me now in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. In other words, you're you're saying he's trying to launch an insurrection. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
I will therefore punish him and release him. So for a second time now, Pilate acknowledges Jesus' innocence. And he adds that that Herod also has come to the same conclusion. But to appease the mob, Pilate says, tell you what, I'll still have this innocent man punished and then I'll release him. We can all go on our way, right? But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Three times, Pilate declares Jesus to be not guilty, and he seeks for Jesus' release Finally, by way of a a custom releasing at the Passover celebration, a prisoner chosen by the people. This was a goodwill gesture on the part of the Romans, and the practice is attested in other ancient works. And wanting to release Jesus, Pilate tees up this option that he thought would be a bit of a no-brainer. Shall I release Barabbas or Jesus? All four Gospels mention this man, Barabbas. Matthew tells us that he was a notorious prisoner. Mark refers to him as a rebel and also mentions that he committed murder in the insurrection. And based on these descriptions, you can, you can see what Pilate is angling at. He's trying to tip the scales in Jesus' favor. But his cunning attempt at diplomacy has failed. The Jewish crowd is insistent. And Pilate is more concerned with keeping the lid on a potential riot than following the dictates of justice. As governor of that region, the way you get kudos from the emperor is by collecting taxes for Rome and keeping order and stability and peace. And Pilate has already been put on notice by the emperor twice for the way he mishandled two earlier situations where things escalated with the Jews. So rather than listen to his conscience, Pilate elects to appease the crowd in hopes of quelling this fracas before it erupts into something more. We read this. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. A man in whom no fault is found is sentenced to death. Can you imagine what your reaction would be to this news if you were hearing about it for the first time? If you were unfamiliar with the gospel accounts and you've just been falling alive, maybe you've been live streaming the proceedings, and you watched this unfold before your very eyes, it would be infuriating, wouldn't it? You would feel sick to your stomach. Why? Because a total miscarriage of justice has just occurred. The prosecution has lied about what really happened. The judge realized this and declared the defendant is innocent, but when the courtroom audience and the prosecutors began to express their displeasure with this and they began to howl, the judge caved and he said, okay, fine, I'll reverse my decision, and he consented to have the defendant executed anyway. The judge's spine was not strong enough to stand up to the uproar. And you know, that's only one injustice. There's a second injustice in this passage, isn't there? Because a guilty man, a murderer, 
someone deserving of death goes free. Jesus is falsely accused of insurrection. Barabbas is guilty of insurrection. He did the very thing Jesus is being convicted of. Jesus deserves to be set free, and Barabbas is rightly deserving of death. And yet the criminal goes free, he walks, and the innocent one is placed among the criminals. Jesus is murdered for a man who had committed murder. The holy and righteous one exchanges his life for the life of a notorious criminal. And as the author of life is led away, a taker of life is set free. And this event right here is a microcosm of the gospel. If you are unfamiliar with the word gospel, if that just sounds like another churchy word to you, it's a word that means good news. So when we talk about the gospel of Jesus, we're saying the good news of Jesus or the good news concerning Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the one who is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. And the good news of Jesus is this, that, that what happened with Barabbas is just a foreshadowing of the freedom that Jesus purchased for all of us as well. You see, the gospel is simply this. What Jesus did for Barabbas, he did for you and me as well. And, and what happened in this scene is a foretaste of the grace that gets unleashed at the cross. I say that because just like Barabbas, what the Bible teaches is that each one of us is guilty of rebellion. We've rebelled against our Creator. God tells us in Romans 1 that He's made certain aspects of His character obvious. Just from looking out at creation, we can know something of His eternal power and His divine nature. And yet, each one of us, instead of honoring God, we rebel. Essentially what we say is, okay God, I know what you want me to do, but I'm going to do what I feel like doing instead. I'm going to call the shots, and rather than submitting to you, I'm going to treat you like a consultant. If, if what you say happens to align with what I think is a good idea, I might take that advice. I'll do that. But if I don't like what you have to say, if I don't like your word, I'm under no obligation to do it. I can still go do it my way. And God calls this rebellion. And according to Romans 6.23, the penalty for this is death. But here's the good news. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Remember what Pilate said. Jesus had done nothing deserving death. He is the innocent one. He's the one who's righteous. He's completely innocent. And so when he gave himself for us at the cross, he was qualified to take the place of the unrighteous. That's you and me. And he was able to purchase our redemption so that we can go free. And there are basically two categories of people in this world. There are those who understand the depth of their sin, those who understand their rebellion, and they identify with Barabbas as rebels, and there are those who don't. And those who don't identify with Barabbas, they read Luke's gospel, they read this account, and they think that's a nice story. But it isn't really like great news or anything. It's kind of like 
getting the, anybody get these, the talk of the town flyer? Just thinking about this. You know, this comes and I look through this. It's like, wow, you know, $5 off uh, some nails, you know, if I want to go get my nails done. Or, you know, you can get um, like $150 off on some new windows at the window depot when you spend $15,000. Or, you know, like 5% off on some refurbished cabinets. I mean, it's nice, right? You know, if you're looking to get your nails done or you need some new kitchen cabinets or you need your driveway pressure washed, uh, you know, if you need new windows, it's great. But you don't get this and say, man, this is great news, do you? And that's how a lot of people treat the good news of Jesus because they don't understand the depth of their sin, their rebellion. It's a nice story, but it's not something I need. And, and here's what I think Jesus would say. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, I think Jesus also could have said, those who don't recognize their captivity, they have no need for a prisoner exchange. And if your assessment of your condition is, ah, you know, I'm not really guilty of that much. I, I don't know, captivity, that seems like a strong word. I'm not deserving of anything, deserving condemnation or death. If, if that's your assessment of your condition, let me ask you this. Why did Jesus allow himself to be tried and convicted? If you've been reading Luke's gospel up to this point, you know that nothing happened to Jesus here that he couldn't have prevented. He could have saved himself. So why did Jesus give himself up? Why did he lay down his life? Here's the answer. It's because he loves us and we can't save ourselves. If there had been another way, Jesus wouldn't have been sentenced to death. So if you haven't embraced the salvation that Jesus offers, I'd say don't be like Herod and harden your heart to the revelation that God is giving you right now. He is speaking to you through his word and by his spirit. He's nudging you. He's telling you that this is true. And so I want to invite you now to respond. I'm just going to ask us all to bow our heads for a moment. As we reflect on this passage, we know Barabbas didn't do anything special to gain his release. He didn't walk free that day because of good behavior. It wasn't a count on him promising to turn his life around. We know he was released solely on what Jesus did, taking his place. And you know, it's the same with our salvation. Jesus pays the penalty for our rebellion. He purchases the ransom for our release. And if we want his, his substitution to be effective for our salvation, we only have to do one thing. And that's to trust in him. That's to put our faith in him. And if you've never done that, you can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, as I think about my condition, I realize that I'm in need of a savior. That I'm a spiritual captive that the just sentence for my rebellion is condemnation and death. 
but I want to be set free. And so Jesus, right now, I put my faith in you as my Savior. I thank you for taking my place. Thank you for being my substitute. And now I want to live for you all of my days. And Lord, for those of us who have already made that decision to embrace you as our Savior, may this picture that you've given us remind us afresh of all that it is that you've done for us so that we would be the worshipers that we ought to be, and that we would go from here and that uh, we would live in such a way that we would remember that we've been bought with a price and that we would honor you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.